Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the first episode of The Prosecution Rests with myself, Jacob Husted, and criminal justice reporter, attorney extraordinaire, Rory Fleming. Right. So this is our first episode. I tweet from Rory Fleming 8A, and I am a criminal justice scholar. I do not speak for any employer on this podcast. I am just me and giving my insights on the world of criminal justice reform and the role that prosecutors play in the criminal justice system in the United States. What Rory and I want to do in this podcast is demystify and interrogate the role prosecutors play in the American criminal justice system. And they really do have a wide latitude to make progressive change but all too often they use their positions to harm and not help the communities they are about to serve. Every episode we will discuss news and events coming out of district attorney's offices around the country, while also taking an in-depth and personal look at the everyday stories of the individual lives affected by the decisions made in those offices. Later on in the episode we will speak to Minipolitan musician, DJ, and activist Emmanuel Condolo, aka the Melancholy Boy, about his experiences in the Hennepin County Juvenile Detention System. So stay tuned for that, and his music is also featured throughout the episode. Our first story today comes from Philadelphia, where Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter defense attorney Larry Krasner has recently managed to secure the Democratic nomination for district attorney, probably paving the way for Philly to actually have a progressive reformer at the head of the prosecutor's office. Right. And since Philadelphia is a Democratic stronghold, even though there will be a general election in November, I believe, no one really expects the Republican candidate to win. It's possible, but highly unlikely. So he is, Larry Krasner is the presumptive next district attorney in Philadelphia, which is what Philadelphia calls its head prosecutor. And head prosecutors are called different things throughout the United States. For instance, we're recording from Minneapolis tonight, and we call them county attorney here. So I thought it was interesting how how quickly all of the uh, normally uh, normally democratic institutions in the city spoke out against him. Fraternal Order of Police, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Daily News, Democratic Senate candidate Katie McGinty, all of these people uh, endorsed the third place finisher instead of uh, Krasner. Which was Joe Kahn, right? Uh, yes. No, Rich Nagrin. Rich Nagrin, that's Rich right. Rich Nagrin. Mm-hmm. And so the reason for that is because criminal justice politics, especially at the local level, when we're not talking about like state senators, we're talking about district attorneys, county attorneys, whatever you may call them, does not really operate on normal Republican, Democrat by like lines like the rest of politics in America. It's really more a division between people who love prison a lot and people (laughs) who love prison generally slightly less. And with Larry Krasner, he's interesting because he's a legitimately progressive candidate for district attorney. He promised things like uh, treating drug addiction like a, a health concern, not prosecuting frivolous cases. And while his campaign website didn't delineate what he would call to be frivolous, one could imagine that has to do with big city 
policing strategies like broken windows and how in New York City people still get prosecuted for minor marijuana possession and jumping the turnstile, uh, which is, you know, a petty theft of 275 or something. Well, in the in the Democracy Now! interview, I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting that he came out very strongly against stop and frisk right. and specifically against uh, Trump's promotion of it during the campaign mm-hmm. uh, and also aligned himself with Bernie Sanders in some interesting ways. Did you see that? Interview? Yeah, I did see that. So he was talked about like not only the Bernie-esque candidate in the district attorney's race, but as a a sizable victory for progressives in in local governments. A lot of Bernie supporters felt demoralized by the 2016 race and how it developed, um, especially after Bernie lost the primary. And there's been a lot of rage in that circle. It probably affected voter turnout, but that kind of candidate took the day in Philadelphia. And that was quite a stellar victory for both progressives as well as people interested in criminal justice reform. So I'm, I'm wondering if this is a harbinger of things to come uh, with a, like a sort of rebellion against the Sessions uh, Department of Justice in that local jurisdictions are now going to put progressive candidates into local district attorney positions as a way to reform uh, criminal justice from within. I think that that is, it's too early to say for sure, but I would not be surprised. I think that um, it is a very hopeful um, light on the horizon that Larry Krasner won. I think that may inspire candidates in other local jurisdictions, other big city uh, jurisdictions where um, it is democratically dominated in other local governments' positions. For instance, you know, we're recording from Minneapolis and... um, you're already seeing that kind of race um, in the mayoral context with uh, Nikima Levy-Pounds, who is a civil rights attorney and a former law professor and is a black woman as well. Um, And she is running against the Democratic incumbent, Betsy Hodges. Yeah, it's possible that it's going to happen in Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis and a little bit of surrounding areas. It's possible that it'll happen in other strongly Democrat strongholds. We have already seen that on the local level with district attorney and state attorney races and county attorney races, whatever you may call them, um, that reformist candidates more broadly have been doing very well at the polls. So in Jacksonville, Angela Corey was a former state attorney, and she was one of the least popular prosecutors on a nationwide level in America, most likely. Um, she prosecuted a 12-year-old boy as an adult in a homicide case. She charged Melissa Alexander under Florida's onerous 1020 life for a firearm laws when she shot a warning shot to deter her domestically abusive husband from abusing her. Um, And she also sought the death penalty per capita basically more than anyone else in America. And Jacksonville is a a very conservative um, big city, Um, compared to other big cities in America. And they elected a quite moderate uh, Republican who is not the standard, uh, I'm the toughest on crime state attorney, but instead is very rational in comparison on her views on how to charge juveniles. She just rolled out a new uh, civil citation program for juveniles, which will hopefully lessen juvenile 
prosecutions, criminal prosecutions in the jurisdiction. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a lot of the focus of reformers has been on the juvenile justice system. Uh, the Twin City Daily Planet recently took Hennepin County attorney uh, Mike Freeman to task for his tough-on-crime approach that has really increased the number of young people in Hennepin County's juvenile justice system. Uh, last January, they write, he charged four teenagers with burglary after schoolyard fight because, and this is a direct quote, it has tougher penalties than the lower-level assault charge. Minor infractions by young people in Hennepin County often carry the threat of strict, lengthy punishments, especially when you're a person of color and when you get in trouble on the wrong side of town. that happened in every family, landed him on the wrong side of the law. He's 19 now, older and wiser, with a burgeoning career as a musician and a producer in the Twin Cities art scene. He's bounced back and sits with me today to reflect on how Hennepin County's strict juvenile crime enforcement has shaped his life. Emmanuel was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He immigrated with his mother to France when he was a baby, and then to Monticello, Minnesota, the first home he remembers. When he was 14, however, his family moved once again to Minneapolis, and that transition proved to be explosive. It was like day and night, basically. Monticello was very conservative, but then moving to the cities was very a very drastic change, a more accepting pace and a more understanding place to be queer and a person of color and feel at least somewhat comfortable in your surroundings. All right, so you're junior higher, and eventually you get into trouble. But that's always a much longer story than whatever action got you in trouble in the first place. Can you get us to that point? How was it? How were those first few years? When did you start being naughty? <laughs> well, I was always a good boy, actually. <laughs> the situation that landed me in juvie was actually really petty and kind of really dumb but I feel like I asked for it in a small way. I was just very a very angsty, melodramatic teenager, or should I say preteen, and I was invited to a concert that my friends were willing to pay for, and me being the angsty, melodramatic teen that I was, uh, when my mom said no, I caught a very strong attitude. And once I had finally gotten home, I was so frustrated that I decided to take a chair and throw it against a wall and the leg busted and fell off. When I turned back, my mother was running out of the door <laughs> and down the stairs and probably to the neighbor's house. I can assume she called the police because they showed up pretty quickly. <laughs> my attitude decided to not fade by the time that they got there. So when they got there, I was very frustrated and irritated that my mother had called the police on me for such a small incident. And when they threatened to arrest me, I was like, fine, whatever, arrest me. And they did. Um, I was arrested for criminal misconduct, 
um, domestic violence, I guess. Emmanuel spent three days in county juvenile jail. He was assigned a court-appointed lawyer who didn't really explain his rights, what was going on, or whether or not he had any options. The lawyer instructed him to plead out, and he did. The judge ordered Emmanuel to move out of his parents' home and into a home for delinquent boys in St. Paul. And I just remember there being, like, house drama and there being, like, like battles over who gets to play video games or who gets to watch TV. Or, But I think some of the kids that were in there were experiencing a very different lifestyle than I was and were, well, at the time I was... I'd like to pretend that I was, like, extremely innocent, but I had the desire to become not so innocent. And when I saw people who were my age and a little bit older and who were more involved with, like, gangs and drug dealing and uh, just, like, car theft and whatnot, I kind of questioned the direction my life would take after. What was your mother's reaction to all of this since... uh... Uh, she she did call the police, and then the police did not go away once they became involved. How has her attitude towards the police changed? Um, how has her attitude toward you changed? How 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 has that worked out? Um, she was a lot more emotional about it than I was. Um, I was very frustrated in the beginning because I didn't think that it would be expunged from my record. Uh, I thought it would stay there, but in the future, it actually was. And I still held a little bit of anger from being arrested and like going to jail, even though it was partially my fault. Um, but for her, I don't know. It just it was a very stressful situation for her because I'm pretty sure she wasn't expecting me for expecting for me to literally go to jail that day, and. I don't know. It made our relationship a little bit a little bit harder to handle. Not for very long, but as a teenager, a very, very long time. Emmanuel was released from the boys' home after only three weeks, but it instilled in him a passion for social justice and righting some of the wrongs he saw in the system. He became involved with For the Kids, a Minneapolis-based outreach program targeting young people in juvie. And right around that time, the entire nation seemed to finally be taking notice of the stark injustices of racial profiling and police violence in the criminal justice system. When I went to my first Black Lives Matter protest, it was after the death of Mike Brown, and I remember sitting in front of the maybe the first or fifth precinct in Minneapolis, and we were just chanting and yelling, and I remember watching someone get hit by a car actually because the driver decided to just plow through the crowd and I remember the direct response being in defense of the woman who was ran over and it kind of like changed my understanding of uh, of a community in the social justice spectrum because it kind of showed me how supportive people can be in social justice I remember on that day marching onto like 35W and onto 94 and it being very, very cold and me forgetting to wear socks, that's pretty usual. And I just realized um, how much of a fight it would actually have to be just based on the thought of walking for a very long time and 
just remembering that I should be steadfast in my activism if I actually want to make any change. Do you feel like your time in juvie was a deterrent to further criminal activity? Uh, do you think juvenile detention system is helpful uh, in Minneapolis and surrounding areas to prevent crime? I feel like it's a waste of time. And I feel like it it takes more of a toll on the youth instead of actually pushing them in the direction of... Um, being members of society in a positive and helpful way and it's more of just a stressor and more of a reason to backlash or to to reject the system and feel as if um i don't know that the system is not for you i guess Emmanuel Condolo lives in St. Paul and produces and records his own music under the name Melancholy Boy. You can find his music on SoundCloud or follow the links on our website, podsecution.com. Now let's turn to Miami-Dade County, Florida, where state attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundle has been facing severe criticism over her handling of the death of Darren Rainey. Darren Rainey was a 50-year-old, mentally ill, nonviolent offender incarcerated in the Miami-Dade Correctional Institution in 2012. On June 23rd of that year, four guards allegedly locked Rainey in a shower stall and turned on scalding hot water as a form of punishment. Four hours later, Rainey was found dead, and the post-mortem examination noted Rainey's body temperature was an extraordinary 109 degrees Fahrenheit. Despite public outcry, Fernandez Rendell chose not to prosecute the guards, leading to a civil case brought by the family of Darren Rainey. So, from my perspective, and this is a nuance that I think does not get talked about in the media enough, or at all, potentially, is the fact that while the case, while the facts of the case are heinous, it is it is possible that um, that her legal judgment in deciding that the guards did not commit a crime is potentially true based on the facts, um, at least the, her version of the facts um, as, as they stand. However, even if she had announced that she wasn't going to charge the guards, which it's very uncommon for uh, head prosecutors to charge law enforcement in any capacity. Essentially, if Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, who's the state attorney of Miami-Dade County, um, if she just did something to recognize in the public sphere that it was a horrible death and that inmates do not deserve that kind of treatment and 
even apologize for the fact that this was just the state of the law, maybe the backlash wouldn't be so bad. Maybe there wouldn't be packed crowds demanding um, that she charge or some groups saying that she should resign um, locally in the in the county. But instead, her reaction was she apparently called um, organizers who were uh, protesting this decision a mob mentality, exercising a mob mentality, which is an insulting thing for her to have said. On top of that, recently, um, the Miami New Times wrote an article talking about how she had blocked up to 100 people who had been critical of the decision on, on Twitter, uh, including myself, actually. And this came out around the same time as um, an institute at Columbia University talking about um, how they would, they're, they're looking for people who have been blocked by President Donald Trump on Twitter. And because of potential First Amendment claims. The Honolulu Police Department had actually been successfully uh, sued, at least in the sense that there was a settlement payment for deleting comments from a public Facebook page that was, that was clearly associated with the police department. So whatever that may stand in terms of litigation of any sort is one thing, but she could have just apologized. And if not bold, she could have instead of blocking concerned citizens or residents, she could have muted their accounts because then they could still access things like legal announcements and uh, case developments that she tweets from that profile, which is uh, at Kathy uh, FNDZ Rundle uh, on Twitter. You're talking about two things here. You're talking about uh, potential First Amendment violations or uh, or restrictions on uh, citizens' First Amendment rights through Twitter, and then the other issue is uh, it's her actual handling of the Darren Rainey case. And I, I was also struck by the fact that they didn't go for a grand jury when so many of these cases uh, about the treatment of black men by the criminal justice system are always seeking that grand jury. Mm indictment but uh she specifically avoided that and i was wondering if you could if you if you had any rationale why she said that it, it she seemed to think that it was uh it was more public if if they didn't do a grand jury right and what i've heard about that is former uh miami state attorney janet reno who then became the attorney general of the united states under bill clinton had um done a grand jury uh hearing over a police brutality incident in Miami. And when the jury refused to indict, there was a public outrage. I believe there were uh, protests and maybe destruction of property, things like that. And um, local uh, uh, words from people I've spoken to in Miami seem to suggest that um, she wants to avoid that sort of publicity. And she also said something about or suggested something about wanting to avoid publicity. However, the, the public does have a right to know um, what goes into these sorts of uh, cases involving law enforcement officials who have done things that at least seem or factually are atrocious, but may not rise to the level of crime. If a public official blocks a Twitter user who disagrees with them, is this a violation of the First Amendment? Tell us what you think on Twitter using the Twitter handle at Podsecution or email us on our website, www.podsecution.com. We'll highlight correspondence on a later show.
As arrests of undocumented migrants increase across the United States under the Trump administration, the safety of so-called sanctuary cities is being called into question. On May 14th, here in Minneapolis, Ariel Vences Lopez was approached by a transit officer on the blue line who suspected Vences Lopez had not paid his fare. In a mobile video of the incident, the officer can be seen asking the young man, are you here illegally? This is a complete violation of transit authority protocol. And the incident report suggests that the altercation became physical, Vences Lopez was tasered and eventually arrested. Even though Minneapolis claims to be a sanctuary city, the arrest triggered the involvement of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and Vences Lopez is now slated for deportation. The Transit Authority did respond by firing the officer involved, but does not have jurisdiction to intervene in Vences Lopez's immigration case. This poses important questions about the unintentional power low-level law enforcement has to take immigration matters into their own hands. Right. So I think that uh, there's there's a lot to unpack in the intersection between criminal justice and immigration right now, especially under Trump. Um, and so I think that the first point is that, yes, a mayor or a city council can declare a city a sanctuary city, but without the buy-in from local head, especially head um, law enforcement agencies. So the the head prosecutor, the sheriff, the police chief, if those um, parties do not buy in, then that means they won't advise their uh, line officers to actually, you know, uh, act accordingly in it. In a sanctuary city type of way, um, I suppose one could say. I think that um, that here it's interesting in particular because the transit officer actually either exceeded his authority or broke a rule of the transit officers, which is you're not supposed to ask for immigration status when asking if somebody paid their fare. Um, and he lost his job because of it. Right, so. but the, the problem with that is, unlike in some contexts, that does not change the fact that now this, this young man is going to be most likely deported. Mistake has been made, even if, it, and say if it were deliberate malfeasance, the, the, cruel, the acts that did not conform with policy has already been done, and that triggered this whole process um, with ICE. And so, and, and then, then another question comes into play that is something that's still worth asking, even though the current president does not see it this way, which is, is deportation really the appropriate uh, sanction for somebody who committed the misconduct of either forgetting or even willfully not paying $2 or two seventy-five or whatever it might be in your city for public transportation or quasi-public transportation. Well, and I think uh, Minneapolis has sort of uh, resoundingly said, no, that is not a legitimate uh, a legitimate punishment for such a minor offense. However, what the story tells us, though, is as much as this city might want to be liberal and progressive, 
and uh, be a sanctuary city and be a safe haven for migrants who do not have papers. The individual police officer or law enforcement officer can scarily take things into his own hands, whether that be by mistake or on purpose. Even the question, are you illegal, shows uh, the state of mind of the officer who, who was questioning him. Like the fact that that came up in such a routine uh, in such a routine interaction shows uh, the precarious place that sanctuary cities have right now under, under Trump and uh, what little they can do to control the actual, uh, the actual deportations that might happen uh, because of civic interaction in the city. I think that's right. And I think that that is why it's up to the sheriff and the police chief and in the prosecution uh, context, the assistant district attorneys, the, the it's important for them to be advised by their bosses what their bosses expect. And uh, especially when you have um, a law enforcement official, say a sheriff or a police chief in particular, who has voice concerns and numerous have, uh, this has come up in San Antonio with the sheriff and police chief in interviews, for example, um, that they're concerned that what will happen is that even victims in, in Trump's America will stop coming to court to testify because of fear that even if it's not a blanket fear of all police officers in their city, they're never going to know, no matter how allegedly progressive the city is, if they're going to run into somebody like... Mr. Um, not named. Not named. <laughs> the the not named transit officer from this article in uh, the in Minnesota Public Radio News. Um, because, eh, well, and I'll say this: I think that that things that uh, such local um, officials can do to um, try to mitigate that chance to try to get say victims to come forward in criminal cases is even though there's there have been studies which call into question the um, efficacy of things like this, um, things like diversity trainings, things like um, racial sensitivity trainings. The, the man on the transit uh, in this case was Hispanic and the transit officer is white. And the question, are you here illegally? Sounds quite close to racial profile. He's basically Garrison Keeler. Just looking at the <laughs> basically Garrison Keeler is. <laughs> well, Garrison Keeler did have the thing about um, Keith Ellison being a quote unquote mediocre black Muslim. He did say that. Which oh my! Is super, super bad. Well, um, now that Garrison Keeler's off the air, we're going to fill <laughs> fill Minnesota's airwaves right with. with uh, with a slightly more progressive version of Lake Wobegon. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I really was interested if you had any idea at what point is the point of no return? Okay, so the officer interrogates him about his legal status and he shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. Once he knows uh, that the person he is talking to is not legally in this country, is that past the point of no return? In um, terms of when, the... uh, when does ICE get involved? Why can't uh, why can't they let him out? So like, what, so it's... ICE so ICE is triggered where there's an arrest, um, where there's a booking photo or fingerprints or anything along those lines. I think that 
Um, from the front end, the way to um, avoid this sort of situation uh, in terms of a society or in terms of a sanctuary city more specifically is to um, do more know your rights trainings. Mm -hmm. the, the undocumented person who's now facing deportation very likely legally did not have to respond in any way. Now, granted, even if the person said, um, I know my rights or something along those lines, I don't have to answer that question, this individual transit officer would likely proceed down the steps of booking them if there was any kind of proof or arguably even if, you know, quite likely even if there was no objective proof of uh, beating the fare. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's unfortunate in that there's no, there's going to be no way a sanctuary city can be 100% what it says, what, what a mayor or city councilman may say about like the city being a, a sanctuary city because of the fact that they can't be the panopticon watching every single individual law enforcement agent to make sure that there is no booking photo or fingerprints for a legitimate probable cause of a criminal offense or not. So that's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but I think that, um, that that's, yeah. I think that one more thing that I would say about this is I know in New York City, they're doing what's called the Swipe It Forward campaign, which is, um, they have, before you get a, a, a pass the turnstile to get on the, the transit, um, you have to like uh, swipe a card to get in. It's like two seventy five, and um, and some people don't have those cards and instead jump it. Now, granted, I think that um, that there's a very sound argument to be made about it should be public for all, regardless of uh, uh, ability to pay. But what a lot of uh, activists are doing in New York City um, is the this campaign where they will swipe it forward if they have the money to afford it and somebody's just like you know um like can't pay the fare just paying it for them and you know doing it as an act of general goodwill to one's fellow human being um we could try to do more on that in the twin cities if you are interested in learning more about the swipe it forward campaign or any of the issues news items and articles discussed on today's show check out our website podsecution.com you can tweet us at Podsecution on Twitter or individually at Jay Husted or at Rory Fleming 8A. Thank you for making it through the entire first episode of the Podsecution Rest. Between sound issues and editing problems, it's definitely been a learning process. But like our current administration, we here believe that confidence breeds competence. Thanks for listening, and until next time, the Podsecution Rests. The Podsecution Rest is produced and edited by me, Jacob Husted. Music in this episode is from Emmanuel Condolo, a.k.a. The Melicon Boy. Check him out on SoundCloud today. And a special thanks to Shannon Fleming for all her support. <laughs>